Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. Hey, Alex. Welcome to Strategy of Finance podcast. Really glad to have you on here. Really appreciate it. So why don't we kick it off with a little background on you. Tell us how did you make your foray into this world of finance and ultimately became a CFO? Yeah, so, um, you know, a little bit background um, on me. I was born in Germany. You probably can um, hear this in my accent. I did move to the United States to study at UCLA at the business school, got a scholarship from the German government. And that was sort of, um, it did change my life because the approach in studying in the United States is different than what it is in Europe. Way more practical here. People are taught to function in companies quite quickly. In uh, Europe, it's different. So I have quite some international background. I had the chance to work in London, Paris, and then for many years in uh, South America. But I've been living in Los Angeles for the last 25 years. I'm now a dual citizen, German and um, American. So I'm a full-time CFO, primarily in financial services and Fortune 500 companies. Currently, I'm the CFO for a fintech company that is venture-backed and headquartered in San Francisco. We are completely remote, so all all employees work from all over the uh, country. And some people actually moved out of the country to uh, Mexico and Costa Rica. But we still have a small headquarter in San Francisco. So we are a fintech company in the real estate lending space. We provide about 20,000 loans to real estate investors per year. And we are the biggest lender in this space. We have about a 10% market share. We use a lot of AI and machine learning to make credit decisions and to, you know, really to, to automate processes. We can make credit decisions right up front when the borrowers, you know, put in their information and solicit credit. So it's a lot of decisioning is moved to the front of the funnel that we efficiently deny applications that we can't underwrite. And um, that gave us the ability to scale. And uh, we can see that we have a lot of market share gains over the last year. So as a CFO, I work closely with the top leadership team to make the company more profitable and more valuable. Our exit strategy is either to go public in a couple of years or work towards a takeout with a strategic investor, asset managers, 
and those things. But um, I see my role really to increase the enterprise value to a certain threshold that we need to do those transactions. A lot to unpack there. Before we get into kind of the chronology of your various roles, tell us how did living in various different countries, getting exposed to various different cultures, how did that shape you as a professional? Well, look, um, first thing you learn that, um, you know, there are different ways to do things and, you know, what you're used to maybe working while where you are. But, um, you know, people and countries and cultures have different backgrounds and histories. And um, often it does make sense, you know, the way they do things. You just need to get flexible and um, understand that people want to do the right thing. And then, you know, do the best and be flexible in um, how things are being done. Makes sense. So out of UCLA, you ended up joining Sony. Is that right? Yes. So why don't we talk a lot more about sort of your early years in finance and how did that shape up your professional acumen? Uh, You have spent a few years at uh, Sony, then NetSmart, but that landed at Bank of America where you have spent a good 10 years of your career. Can you take us through that journey in terms of uh, what were those different roles and kind of what made you hang around Bank of America for so long? Yeah, so I really came up through investing and investment banking and capital markets. I used to work in interest rate derivatives and and those hedging products. And I also worked many years in South America in um you know, privatizations, project management. And um, I was the first floor trader at the Ecuadorian Stock Exchange, where I worked with international investors who wanted to invest in emerging market debt and in um, stocks uh, and currency and, and all those things. So I had lived in South America for quite a while and then came back to the United States. And I uh, started with uh, Sony Pictures in the international TV finance group. So I was responsible for the TV channels in South America that Sony, you know, had and managed and worked a lot with uh, Disney, with Universal, with Warner Brothers on uh, distribution and making those cable TV channels profitable. So when I started with with Sony, I realized that I had moved from investment banking to corporate finance, right? It was basically, you know, how can we improve uh, profitability of those channels? How can we expand the growth? Can we do something with margins and all those things? But that was uh, corporate finance. and But I was used to work in capital markets, doing a lot of trading and sales. But um, I think they hired me because um, after seven years, I became fluent in Spanish. And they also needed someone who, who sort of is uh, comfortable with the South American um, culture. So that's how I um, ended up there. And yeah, my role was um, you know, to um, take over the, from a finance perspective, to take over the new channels that Sony built up, you know, after the corporate development group set them up. They moved over to finance and we really worked with local management to put them on a path 
to profitability and making sure that there's not much damage to be done. We ran in a, into a lot of political issues. Venezuela as a country turned somewhat um, antagonistic towards the U.S. And we had big satellite, satellite uplink facilities in Venezuela. We had to move this to the U.S. or there were devaluations in um, Argentina and in Brazil where all of a sudden we lost a lot of money because um, we had local deposits and banks and all those things. But for me, it was sort of the change from investment banking, from the capital market side into just managing operations, which is just different. But um, at the end of the day, it's all sort of the NPV that you can extract from those assets and um, hopefully um, increase your free cash flow. Tell us more about your time at Bank of America. You were managing the home loan division there. How did that came about? And it seemed like a pretty large portfolio of business that you were looking after. Yeah, really what happened was um, after Sony, I signed on with an internet company. That was when there was a big first big wave of internet companies. It was a small startup company that lasted um, one year. And um, this, the, 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 the company was held primarily by Citibank. Citibank at that time had about 100 internet initiatives, but things and growth didn't go as um, they wanted. And they pulled the plug on the funding after one year. For me, it was the first time that I was in an organization that really went um, bankrupt and was shut down. So um, it was a very sobering experience. But, um, you know, I learned that, you know, even if you're backed by big investors, it doesn't last forever if you can't deliver on uh, business and growth um, goals. So coming out of um, this, I started in the mortgage business and I had been in financial market, you know, prior to Sony and in, in Germany and, and in South America. So I was um, well familiar with uh, you know, with those financial markets, but I started as a strategic planner at the headquarters. So I worked with the executives on developing strategies and strategic plans and really working with the um, executives to roll out those plans. So um, I, um, you know, learned to do strategic planning and strategy work, which really still helps me in my current role because as a CFO, there's a lot of corporate strategy and um, there are different playbooks and different approaches, how to do strategy and strategic planning. And uh, most of all, really to realize the planned value out of those strategies. It's easy to um, put things into a PowerPoint or, or, or those presentations, but at the end of the day, you know, it comes to materializing and delivering value from those initiatives. So that was sort of um, very good to, to learn there and, you know, navigate cross-functional teams, navigate different agendas of the senior executives, but then also be part in the C-suite to really understand how they were thinking about things. That was very gratifying, but, um, you know, there was a huge mortgage boom that came to an end and, you know, they um, really cut down the mortgage business and then um, I started to move on to more smaller companies because um, I like the more entrepreneurial aspect. Bank of America, they, I think, have two or 300,000 employees, and it's a huge organization. And it became 
very difficult to fight sort of the red tape within the organization and to get things done. And then I got interested in more uh, mid-sized companies. They can turn faster. You have um, way more impact on outcomes on the bottom line. And since then, I have been in um, smaller companies, but also in other huge companies. But um, it's all good um, because some different sizes have different advantages and different disadvantages. Absolutely. So you have seen the dot-com bubble and the impact of that on the startup that you were at closing down. Then while you were at Bank of America, of course, you saw the 2008 financial crisis, and I'm sure that had an impact on the business that Bank of America was doing, especially in your division, home loans. What those two bubble bursts taught you, and how are you a different person having seen that, having lived through that as a professional? What um, I took away from that is once you are in the C-suite, you really need to live with the consequences of the decisions that you make. Right? So you have real P&L responsibility. If you are a director or VP of finance, you do a lot of work for the senior executives, but you don't really make a decision. You probably propose certain decisions and you present the findings of what you're doing, but you are not really, you know, you don't have skin in the game in the sense that you are directly responsible for the outcomes. So that is sort of a real change. And as a CFO, you need to basically you validate the financial statements that everything is correct. And, you know, you take a personal risk by by doing this job. But then it's very gratifying, right? And it is very gratifying to have a direct outcome on the outcomes. And um, it's very gratifying to shape things in the organization. But I think the real switch is from um, you know, making recommendations to making decisions. So what I learned is um, you've got to be very paranoid of risks that are out there. And often these are risks that are hiding in plain sight. So looking back at the big financial crises and the big bubbles that were out there, it was all looking back, it was all there, but you are so much wrapped up in the day-to-day, you have a real trouble seeing those risks that are lurking out there. So that's why I'm sort of, um, I'm always paranoid. Is there something that I should see, but I don't? But that's an interesting one, right? Like, for example, COVID-19 pandemic, right? No one could have seen it coming, right? In some ways, uh, one could argue that the whole SVB saga Yes, it was kind of in happened, you know, unfolded in the plain sight, but still, right? Like no one really thought about covering that risk. How do you like you were at teleperformance when COVID nineteen happened, right? And I'm sure you guys managed through it well. How did that kind of management of that crisis really took place in in teleperformance? If you can share something, and you know, having experience from those other two crises. What were you able to do more effectively or efficiently or quickly that led you to better managing the COVID-19 pandemic for teleperformance? So teleperformance is a French multinational company. They are operating in 90 countries. They support customers. It's a customer care company, you know, offshoring and outsourcing of customer care. So a lot of call center stuff. 
So there are 90 countries, they support um, over 100 languages, and it's a truly global company with 500,000 employees. So I was a CFO for, you know, for all the English-speaking countries, including India and APEC. And we saw COVID coming over four to six weeks. So we saw that different countries would shut down operations country by country. Obviously, sort of it started in, uh, in Asia, you know, went around there. Then it moved to South um, America. And it was very scary. Then it came to the United States. And it was totally, the company was totally unprepared for those type of black swan event, sort of from, from a probability perspective, way low probability those, that those things happen. So my takeaway was, um, you know, you've got to be fast if those things happen. And it is very difficult to make decisions if you don't have all those, um, if you don't have the data set to make good decisions. We were sort of the company moved from a profitability perspective really to a cash and liquidity perspective. We were concerned that all the economy shut down that our clients would go out of business, right? It was totally unclear what the impact was. And on a global level, what they did is um, they did issued massive debt just to have liquidity. The finance role sort of transitioned from, you know, budgeting, accounting, forecasting, profitability to a lot of scenario planning, right? Lot of short, a lot of short-term cash forecasting and it was um, just, you know, how would we get through the next 60 to 90 days? It um, was very difficult um, to manage through this, and profitability completely took a backseat. It was all sort of about surviving at that point. Makes sense. Moving on, tell us how did the move to Kiavi happen? I had been working out of state for the last six years. And I had been, I mean, where I live is in Los Angeles. I had worked in um, Las Vegas for three years. And then I wanted to come back to Los Angeles. And then I got an offer from Teleperformance, who was a, who's a massive company. My experience, um, you know, my, my areas of responsibilities basically would grow. That is, um, the number one company in their category. I didn't know much about them, but the more I started talking to them, I realized it was uh, a um, top-notch company. The problem was um, they were in um, Salt Lake City. So um, I just you know, was on my way back to um, Los Angeles to relocate, and then I got um, this opportunity. And then I said, um, I'm gonna take this opportunity. And then I worked out of Salt Lake City, for three years. So I had been um, you know, out of state just during the week for six, for six years. And look, I felt um, it was time to come back to, to, to Los Angeles. But then I got, um, I, got, you know, I got a call from a recruiter if I had interested, if I would be interested in, in Kiabi, this um, real estate fintech lender who was headquartered in San Francisco. But um, San Francisco is clearly closer than Salt Lake City. So, um, and there, I always wanted to work for 
a well-funded startup that is growing fast, that has the opportunity to go public, and is very sophisticated. I'm really intrigued by AI learning, you know, um, all those um, sort of very innovative business models. So that intrigued me. And then I was back in the mortgage business, if you want. The mortgage business is a very low margin business, and there's a lot of volatility in the business. If interest rates go up, as they now, business um, drops by 50%. If interest rates go down, then business um, expands. But um, I felt very comfortable with the industry, and um, I'm very intrigued um, what we are trying to do at Kiavi. Awesome. You have certainly managed different teams, which are both, I would imagine, housed uh, in a particular location as well as remotely, right? Do you have certain tips on how to best manage a remote team and still get the best, the winning spirit and, and, the, and the productivity out of them? Yeah, so in terms of team sizes, I've managed teams between 10 and 400 people in the um, you know finance, accounting, and related stuff. There's risk, procurement, IT, those things. And uh, when I was at Teleperformance, there were 200 people in the Philippines and 50 people in uh, India. We had you know had a couple of CFOs, country CFOs who reported to me. You know, was Canada, England, South Africa, Philippines, India, Japan, and China. It is um you know it's difficult to manage because the time zones are difficult. So you either have a lot of calls very early in the uh, in the day or late in the in the evening. Look, it is um you you got to create a good um, rapport and cadence with them. It is important that you know that you over communicate because people are just closer. They're not as close. They're not in the headquarter. They are not privy to a lot of discussions that are happening on in the in the leadership teams. And you know, I have one rule that um, is um, I don't like any surprises. So there's an expectation if I want to hear sort of the bad things and the good things before they you know are being distributed within the organization. And I really try to get you know a friendly, a very friendly, open dialogue going where people feel safe and secure. But the key is that you know it has to be very open. And um, you know I like to be in uh, you know I like to be in the decision making process. So the more senior people get, they they do have um they run their business and their regions and their functions. But um, at the end of the day, I have some ultimate responsibility and I want to really understand what their thinking is and want to make sure that it is aligned with what the company really wants to achieve. But um, it's all about, you know, how can you create an environment where there is sort of a good, open and constructive um, dialogue? That's what I'm trying to do. To foster that, do you have a specific cadence with your teams and others, you know, peers that you go through on a weekly or a monthly basis? Yes, I I do have, um, you know, in uh, my direct reports, I have two one-on-one meetings per week. One is more about the daily stuff, you know, decks that need to be prepared for the board and those things. 
And then the other one is um, the strategy that we are pursuing as a department. So for instance, what I like is um, the uh, departments that report to me, I try to tell them that this is their organization that they need to optimize. And there has to be a strategy for the accounting department and for FP&A, for IT, and there has to be a strategic theme. At a minimum, they need to make what they do day to day that they make it better. In um, you know accounting and finance, it's a lot about accuracy, right? If you look um, FP&A, they need to get the forecasting error down. That is sort of a key metric for me. I'm looking for scalability, right? These are all indirect cost centers. They cannot scale. They cannot increase with business volumes. By definition, they are somewhat fixed. And um, I'm looking for real strategies um, that they can scale up. In accounting, I'm looking for a key metric there for me is um, how quickly can they close the books, right? It is always um, the trade-off is the controllers want to be sort of um, 100% perfect. But, um, you know, I'm okay if certain things are getting chewed up the following month for the benefit of getting more real-time reporting. You know, you have, um, you know, other, other departments, they have different key metrics. So one, one meeting is, um, you know, the day-to-day things. The other meeting is really how do we make progress towards some strategic goals of the department. And then with the leadership team, I have weekly one-on-ones um, with my peers. And then um, with the CEO, I, I you know, talk quite often, also through Slack and Teams and those things. There's sort of a lot of, you know, quick conversations during the day. So it's really important to have a good time, you know, to be plugged in to sort of understand what are their challenges that they work through. And then at the end of the day, finance um, has to help them to be more successful in their, in their areas because it's really a sort of a team effort. I want finance to be embedded in the market facing in the market facing functions i want that finance is the owner of record for all the analytical stuff you know that's being done it is sort of um, difficult when the sales people do financial analysis because you know not to take anything away from them but there's a certain way to do it and i have sort of agreement that head of sales if there's a more you know more complicated project that it runs through finance so that we sort of do present the findings and then, you know, the, the business discussion can, um, you know, can be led by the other departments. Right? Sort of, I'm a big proponent of um, operational finance, sort of that finance branches out and it's being embedded. And that is also, you know, finance, finance accounting and those, those departments, there has to be a customer orientation. So finance needs to be easy to work with. Right. And I'm looking sort of I'm looking for testimonials where where people say, oh, you know, the finance team did a great job. But I'm looking also for feedback that they say the quality of the work is good, but it takes too long till we get those results. So it's sort of the, the mindset of being customer oriented and then don't make it difficult to work with finance. Makes a ton of sense, especially in 2023. We have seen a lot more demand for CFOs, and especially from 
even earlier stage startups. In your experience, what is the best time for a company to hire a CFO? I think um, when they can afford it. So look, often I, I think at the beginning they, you know, they 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 sort of um, the founding team. They pretty much do everything. They do payroll. They have QuickBooks. But then I think um, once revenues are coming in, once um, you know, there's some fundraising. Once you have bank credit lines, those things, you know, it's probably a good time to to hire one. You know, and um, it's often also um, the the salaries. It's hard to get people who are experienced, who probably also come with a little bit of limitations because they know to do certain things. And startups, they probably, you know, they need a lot of flexibility. But I think once you have sort of, um, once you get audited, once you have a board, once you have funding, venture-backed funding, um, those guys are in in the later stages are used to be um, a little bit more structured and formalized. But then, you know, the CFO brings some, I think, brings good perspective to the business. You know, the CFO, I think, needs to be more than just a scorekeeper, right? That is sort of the minimum thing. You know, the finance organization looks at numbers um, all day long, and I think they they need to do more, right? They need to do enable other departments. They need to point out where there are opportunities for growth, for for cost savings and all those things. So, you know, it's it's sort of a broad function. And um, everyone says um, the finance organization need to be a trusted partner to management. I think that's true. But um, it depends how how the the organization is set up in, in the company. It depends on the, the CEO and of the culture of the company. Sometimes it's more narrow. Right, then it's just sort of more accounting centric and looking backwards. But then there are also companies, and that's what I'm trying to achieve, to have a real seat at the table, to be in the important decisions, especially when you talk about capital allocation. Basically, how do you spend the money that you spend? Do you have a good you know, capital allocation process? Do you really focus on the right, on the right initiatives? And then do you really deliver value by delivering on time those initiatives, right? So I think, um, you know, the, the super CFO, and I'm not saying that's me by a long shot, is really a proxy for the CEO. So if you can get as a CFO a real good understanding of, um, you know, the operating models, you know, the whole sales strategy and all those, um, you know, critical things including technology management and have really insight in technology because it drives a lot. So that sort of, that would be the super CFO. But then look, um, we are coming more finance, accounting and more from the administrative thing. But the more you can morph into those, um, you know, and, and into advising really um, the top leadership team, that is sort of um, where the super CFO would be. And the closer you can get um, to that, um, the more valuable I believe you to the company. And I guess that certainly the way the role is evolving and, and would be more aligned in the next five years, especially with all the technology advancements that we are seeing. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, there, there are now better tools also, right? You can, um, 
especially on the finance side, the BI, all those BI applications. So basically what that does is the finance teams can turn around faster for forecasts, budgets, you know, analytic scenarios and all those things. We have morphed, um, we have really embraced BI tools, which um, enables the finance team to be more involved in really the high value analytics and high value projects. Right. On top of that, um, those systems, they can integrate closely with Salesforce, with enterprise, uh, enterprise systems, with the accounting systems, you know, with, you know, all types of other systems. And I think that enables, um, you know, the CFO organization to be um, way broader and to be way deeper in, in those other processes. So that, that's really great. And then you have um, way better, you know, reporting uh, capabilities with um, Microsoft BI and Tableau and those things. You know, you can have standing reporting and you can see real time how the, you know, the business comes in. You can monitor where sort of, um, you know, if, if you lose market share in some regions or sort of for us, our, you know, applications and submissions, you know, trend on a daily, on, on, on a daily basis and you can react much faster. So and I think really finance has, has a real, can be very helpful if finance is leveraged the right way. Makes a ton of sense. Why don't we move to a little bit more on the Kiavi business side? It was intriguing when you said that you provide short-term loans related to homes, right? Which is home loan in general is a category that is associated with way longer term loans. So can you kind of unpack that mystery for us as to how does short-term loans fit into the world of home loans? So the home loans market in the United States is a business between two and three trillion dollars per year. And the biggest, the biggest part, and this is what you are thinking about, is 30-year mortgages to people who want to own a home. That is the biggest part. But then you have more, you have more segments into that market. And what we are catering to the $25 trillion market of old homes, the housing stock in the United States is about 25 to 30 years old. And you have a lot of homes that need to be fixed up and then being sold. And our investors, they buy older homes, they fix them up, and they sell them in the market for someone else to buy. So that is probably a 50 to $60 billion market. And the time horizon is very short. It's a little bit like on TV, fix and flip. So you'll see people buy, buy this rundown house, they trash everything, and then they fix it up and then they sell it. So this is, we have um, of those TV shows, we have a lot of um, customers who do the fundings with us. But we are in the market for people or companies who do 30 or 40 of those projects per month. So the market has very institutionalized. It is not anymore where the plumber is fixing up a home. These are companies, these are companies um, 
who are very well integrated. They, they have artificial intelligence themselves. They know how to buy the homes and they, they want to turn over the homes quickly. And typically they are, they buy, fix them up and get bridge loans. That's what we are providing and um, sell those loans within uh, six months. So that is a business um, that we are in. And um, it's a very, um, you know, the economic trends or the secular trends are good because the housing stock is aging more and more. And there's a huge demand for homes in the United States, but home prices are so expensive that people can't buy homes anymore. So we have come to the point where the average income in the United States doesn't allow people to buy the average home. That makes it very difficult for people because there's a lot of need, but it's out of reach for, for people. And we are sort of more at the entry level at the less expensive homes. And Kiavi has been around for 10 years now. So it's not like yeah. an overnight success. There has been a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I'm sure, that has been put into it. Yeah, so we are still venture-backed. We um, at a D round in terms of funding raised over, I think, 120 or $130 million. And the, the strategy is very interesting. Do we position ourselves as a fintech company or as a traditional lender? So as a fintech company, when the market returns, when the market returns, right now the market is very difficult for fintech companies. The multiples um, have really obliterated. When I look at certain fintech companies that are public, when I look um, how they went public, how they're valued now, it's just a fraction of what they were. Or you market yourself as a traditional lender. So as a lender, you get lower multiples. So the question is, what is it? What is it? And we have um, a lot of data scientists. We have a lot of software engineers, but they come also at a cost. So we know that the market is commoditized. Our borrowers are very cost sensitive. And to carry technology costs, you know, we pursue a differentiation strategy. And, um, it, but it depends on the market. If the market is really a commoditized, cost-driven market, we have to make sure that our borrowers pay up for the differentiated product offering. So, and that really puts the spotlight on the additional technology costs that we are carrying. How much return on investment do we get from our technology investment? So this is sort of this is sort of um, why I, I try to you know I think a lot about that, try to frame this in terms of um, what do we really get from the technology spend? Does it make us more competitive? Can we do smaller loans because we are more efficient in the fulfillment processes? Can we drive down the unit cost? Can we expand our TAM, our total addressable market because others can't do those loans at their cost structure. So but it's sort of um you know what company do you want to be? It is very it's very difficult um to be a fintech lender in our space 
But um, you know, we we have shown that we can scale. The company grows by twenty to thirty percent um, in revenues. So it's it's a high growth company, and we know you know we're gonna we're gonna amortize our fixed cost based um, over the higher higher business volume. Makes sense. Tell us, as a lender, I'm sure you are constantly raising either its equity or debt. What do you do to be prepared for, if I may call, perpetually raising funds for the company? So we finance the company through issue of bonds. Basically, what we do is um, we originate a billion dollars and then we issue bonds. So we bundle those loans into securitizations. Um, We are highly dependent on the capital markets because that's where the cheapest funding is. We also, we, we are diversified. We have other credit lines. We have corporate debt that we issue to um, fund our growth. And then we have a lot of warehouse credit lines. And, uh, you know, the Fed had, you know, has in, uh, increased interest rates quite a bit over the last um, two years. That has increased our funding costs. Um, we can pass them on in a way to our borrowers, but we got to be careful that, you know, their projects, you know, fixing up um, and, 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 and selling homes also needs to return a profit, right? If it doesn't pencil out for them, then, um, you know, then it's very difficult for us. So we, we try to diversify our funding sources. We also sell loans to um, big um, hedge funds, to private equity funds and investors. But um, we are highly dependent on capital markets and we need to be cash flow positive because um, we have some equity in those um, bonds that are outstanding. Right? There's, some, um, there's some credit enhancements and those things where we, where we need to hold cash. And we are growing business and we got to be you know, generating the cash that we can keep our growth. And um, the market has become very challenging in mortgages. Everyone knows this um, in 2023, here at the end of 2023. And um, we are watching the Fed very, very closely. If they keep increasing the rates or if they put it on hold or if they put it, um, if they cut rates, um, hopefully next year. Once um, that happens, we know business um, is going to be very sensitive for that. And then our strategy is basically to be ready when the, the business comes back, right? And then you will see if some companies, if they're technology enabled or not, if they can handle the higher volumes. If they, if they are not, then they need to hire people. And that, that takes a long time and they're always going to be behind the curve. And our intent is um, that we, you know, that we can um, take the the volumes without really, you know, trying to to hire more headcount, which is very difficult because it takes so much time to get the people, you know, get the people, um, you know, acclimated and make them make them really useful. Makes sense. Why don't we move to a hypothetical now? Assume that I'm joining a company as the CFO tomorrow. So what would be your advice to me for my first 100 days? I mean, obviously, at the beginning, it is meeting people, understanding the business model and the financial model. 
So how does a company really make money? If you're from the same industry, I think um, it's, you know, it's, um, it's much easier. So I um, spend a lot of time, obviously, with the finance and accounting um, people walking through P&Ls and um, reporting and balance sheet and cash flow and all those things. And then I would spend as much time with the CEO to understand what is the whole vision for the company, what are sort of the pain points of the company, what is the growth strategy, is an exit, sort of what is sort of um, what are the hot buttons or the things um, that the CFO is um, that, that the CEO is um, passionate about. And then it really is, you know, finding out what the CEO wants from the CFO. So how is this function being positioned in the company? Because um, the CFO is really also an enabler for the CEO. And often they would like to get, you know, distribute responsibilities more evenly because a lot of things um, roll up to the CEO. And I think um, CEOs also wants to have sort of um, an independent um, opinion from someone who is not driven by commissions and all those things. So I think it's, uh, you know, have a good relationship being on one page, good rapport, a lot of trust, and um, really understand what, where they're coming from. The next thing I would do is really assess sort of the financial status of the company. Are we sort of even um, making money? Where do we leave money on the table? And then um, understand um, how come up with a plan to create more enterprise value. So then the question is, um, what is really the growth strategy, right? There, you know, are there new products? You know, do they have new markets? Do they want to cater to new clients with the same product? Is market share sort of distributed evenly in the markets where they are, where they're underperforming? Is there any margin expansion or margin management that you can do? So that's sort of on the revenue and growth side. But then it's also about um, understanding if the opportunities on the operational side. So there are probably some headcount and capacity models. Really, the um, variable cost centers, they have to be truly variable in both directions, right? If business goes up, you've got to be quick in ramping up with capacity. But if certain things don't come through, then you know, then you also need to right size. Um, you know, that is true. Um, that is true. That these are true um, variable costs, right? And then it's also, um, you know, what's really the funding plan? You know, the capital plan for the for the organization is a capital is a balance sheet. Is it optimal? Can you take on more debt, or do you have too much debt? You know, you probably have covenants and all those things. And then, um, you know, I like to um, go into sort of um, product, client, channel, profitability. Do you get really the return of um, what you need, right? You have certain cost of capital and you need to beat the, your cost of equity. If you don't beat it, then um, you're, you're destroying value, right, at the end of the day. So it's sort of, you know, come up with a plan where you think, you know, the the company can increase value over the next couple of years. And I mean, that obviously is sort of in conjunction with the overall leadership team. Very important to um, talk to all the stakeholders, the internal and the external stakeholders. It's, you know, obviously with your peers. 
So I do have weekly uh, meetings with the chief revenue officer. And then, you know, I'm on a cadence with the legal officer to see if there's some, you know, if there's some lawsuits pending, you know, a lot of talk with the uh, COO, head of um, people and those things. But then there's also, you know, got to meet the board members, audit committee, risk committee. Then you have um, the bankers. You know, everyone who gives you a working capital line because um, they want to meet and have a personal relationship, meet with the auditors. So I, I like to spend time with the auditors. I feel that they, um, they're a little bit um, in insurance policy, right? So they, they can help you or they can help, you know, finance people with uh, also wear wrists, right? Wear wrists because they have good perspective and I like to pull them in. The, the audit um, companies, they typically have consulting arms, and I really like to pick their brain. For instance, a question that I have, um, how much of revenue should we spend on um, technology? Or sort of from um, other companies in terms of commissions, how much is that, you know, that we pay out and commissions is that within market? So then you have also typically the insurance function rolls up to the CFO. Got to gotta, um, really make sure that you're not overinsured. If you're overinsured, you pay too much, but that you can't be either underinsured. So there's a whole sort of set of um, network um, that um, you need to build and that it has to be very constructive, that um, this is a very open dialogue. And then, you know, it's um, like, um, you know, assess the talent of the, of the finance and accounting team or the teams that are reporting up to you. You know, if um, if the decision is um, that's a good team, you got to empower them and make sure that, um, you know, when they go in meetings and when they do their work, that they really come on behalf of the CFO, that they are empowered to have the right conversations and to ask the right questions. But often they're a little bit timid if they are sort of also um, hierarchical um, differences. But, you know, um, I want everyone to know everything that we do is to make this a better company and um, really sort of um, that the company can realize the potential that it has. And then I would just go to the internet and would Google what do CFO should do in the first 100 days and it's all, it's all laid out there. Awesome. That was quite a comprehensive explanation. Makes a ton of sense. Tell us, before joining a company, right, there is only a limited set of information that is available. Once you join a company, of course, you have a lot more to look into and get yourself acquainted with and so on. What can a person do before joining a company to make a very cautious decision about joining a particular company as a CFO? Yeah, so if you're in the industry, sort of in that, in that industry, sort of you know who are the top players. And um, you also most likely know people who know the company, right? So that's sort of, that, that's a way to do it. Once you are more in negotiations, typically you need, you, you meet um, the, the top players there. It, it was, um, at Kiavia was great. Um, I met all the, all my peers and, um, you know, the, the department heads that would report to me. It was um, was very interesting because um, you also learn a lot when they, you know, things that they don't talk about. So 
So I thought it was interesting. And then, um, you know, I asked for financials. You know, after once you're after an NDA, they often um, give you access to financials. And, um, you know, try to figure out um, as much um, as you can, right? But typically, it's sort of a process that, um, you know, they, um, they are also vocal on um, what they want from you, right? And then um, you, you see if there's, a good, um, if there's a good fit also culturally. So companies are very different from each other, and um, they have strengths and weaknesses. And you got to see sort of how you fit in there in this whole, you know, in, in the whole team there. But, um, you know, it's a try to find out as much as you can. And um, there's often, a, there's a good data set that you, that you know what you're getting into. Changing gears a little bit, CFO role is certainly quite a demanding one. Tell us what keeps you going, what keeps you motivated. Look, um, CFO is a very influential role. Right, you can impact a lot of things, and um, that sort of um, that's interesting. You also get a very holistic view of the company. So um, I think that is um, you know um, that is um, intellectually very challenging, and um, I just um, like to be able to talk to everyone in the organization. Um, I'm sort of curious um, how things um, work, and um, you know if. Um, it's very gratifying when a company works, um, you know, it's very successful. So I, uh, I do like it. You give up a little bit, um, you know, work-of-life balance, right? There is, um, you are basically um, available 24-7, right? It doesn't really matter if these are weekends and if they're board meetings on, um, on a Monday. Most likely, you need to review and prepare um, over the weekends, um, you know, the, the key people, you know, everyone is doing this. I am um, being from uh, Germany. They, 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 um, they, they don't do it. You can't send emails on a on a weekend. That's sort of like um, they're not doing it. But in the United States, it's uh, it's different. So that comes a little bit with the territory, right? You you try to um, surround yourself with the best team that you can, and um, once you have a, a top notch team, you know it is very helpful. Um, very helpful to work um, through things. So look, um, you know, it's um, it's just um, it's just a very um interesting position that sort of keeps me going. All right, makes sense. What advice uh, would you have for young professionals who want to become CFOs one day? So look, um, I think um, I'm looking for people that sort of I want to promote and bring up. Um, do they really think like owners? Do they have sort of the mindset of um, what would they do if they would run the company? You know, obviously, you know, if they're emerging um, finance people, they don't have, um, they don't see all the information. Um, but, um, you know, I, I always, um, what I always do is when I pass out project or some things uh, to do and they work through this, I ask them, what did you find, right? And there are people who have sort of, they look at you with empty eyes. And I say, what do you mean? Right? And then I say, yeah, but what, what, what did you find out? Um, because you were supposed to look into this. And then you have other people right, that really sort of think about um, and connect the dots. And um, I'm looking for people who have um, good perspective on things. Once, once sort of um, you're more elevated, there's a lot of management discussion. It's not just um, stating the facts and read out, you know, where the variance analysis, you, you look at the P&L, 
you know, when you go through the, the, the finance review meetings, you have people who sort of basically say the differences are here and there. That's not what it is, right? It's sort of the, what does it mean? What is the context? What do we have to do? And why is it even important what you're saying? And you can see sort of people, you know, some people um, are like this and, and other people are like that. And you can, you can see um, people, um, you know, the way they ask question, questions, right? You can see people sort of who outgrow their areas of responsibilities. They just make them better. They think sort of as an owner there, right? They have full ownership of, of their role and it is really well managed. I'm looking for people who sort of, um, you know, outgrow what they were tasked with at the beginning and try to give them more um, areas of responsibilities. But then you also need to protect them. So you want to have them, you want them more exposure, if they have more exposure. And once you once you talk about promotions, typically it's sort of a a group group discussion, right? And if people are not familiar with those people you you propose um, to be promoted, um, you know it's 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 very tough, right? They, you know, I want them to have wins, right? To have wins and be recognized, and then they sort of um, you know, they just want to grow, but um. Look, um, it just, um, you know, maybe it sounds boring, but um, they got to work very hard, right? There's nothing nothing for free. There's a lot of people who want to grow, right? Um, and um, they need to prove themselves. So, but, uh, you know, I think it's gratifying. And um, I, I, I like to um, bring up people just to promote from within. I think people should, um, you know, have with have a talk or have an ongoing dialogue with their um, managers of the career path and um, the goals that they have. And, um, you know, uh, the company, you know, will try to find the best fit for the person in the organization. So it's much easier to promote from within than from the outside. It's, it's also, it's more um, cost effective too. So probably we all know that external salaries, they grow faster than internal um, salaries. And it's such an advantage um, because people have the internal connections, right? They know people and um, it's much easier to get them um, up to speed. So it's, um, you know, maybe they should um, find a mentor in the company, not with the um, aim to get promoted or to, to, to move up. But it's just sort of to bounce off ideas and um, get sort of more perspective. So and it's sort of look, it's it's very um, it's very easy to spot those people, you know, who have those credentials, right? You also see sort of um, you know if they work from whatever from nine to five, right? Or if they have sort of if they feel if they are vested in the company, vested in what they you know and what they're doing. Right at the end of the day, how much uh, skin in the game do you have, and how much do you feel vested in 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 what you're doing? So this is sort of how I look at people, and then once I see them, you know, I, I talk to their managers, and then sort of we we try to um, move them along and um, just give them more exposure, and you know, give them some wins that they can put under under their belt, and um, you know, that that feeds on itself. 
it really feeds on itself. They want to do a good job. They get um, recognized and then they sort of keep going. Awesome. Makes a ton of sense. Tell us, how do you think about a successful career? What is your definition of a successful career? You know, personally, I'm motivated by personal growth. You know, I, I do like sort of um, challenging and unstructured um, environments. So what, what I like is um, when I can bring some experience to a situation that I've seen um, before and then sort of bring in um, things that I've done before. And I, you know, as I said, I, I do like innovative business models. Um, that attracted me to um, Kiavi. And I like um, to really have a seat at the table and, um, you know, have impact um, on outcomes. Once you move up a little bit, the day-to-day -day and the grunt work, so to speak, um, you know, is being done in your organization and you can really work with the outcomes of, of all that work. It is, um, you know, in, in, in the, the senior leadership team, there are a lot of smart people and um, it is just very interesting to, um, to be part of those, um, all of those discussions. And look, um, if, you, um, if you look back, you know, later on, you just um, want to think um, that you spent your time uh, in a smart way and that you're somewhat at peace with yourself and um, what you have and have not um, achieved. So that's sort of how I look at it. Okay, sort of money and equity and all this stuff that, that, that comes along. But um, I don't think it's going to be the, the primary driver because, um, you know, if that's what it is, um, I don't think, um, you know, it's going to work out. Maybe for other people, but not for me. All right. That uh, brings us to our lightning round. That's the last segment of our podcast. Should be a lot of fun. What I'm going to do is ask you quick questions on all I need are immediate responses. You ready, okay. Alex? All right. Let's start with something simple. Uh, sweet or savory? Sweet. Books or podcasts? Um, both. Okay. Thinker or doer? Thinker. Introvert or extrovert? More introvert. Beer or wine now that you're in California? I think wine. <laughs> How does someone impress you? Look, I, I'm impressed by smart people. I, I really like sort of a high quality discussion. I really like um, that that stimulates me. What is your one hidden talent? I don't have one. At least I can't come up with one. Okay. If you can be CFO of any company for a day, which company would you choose and why? I think I would choose Apple because that's probably one of the most successful companies. And I really like um, well-run companies. And these are that's probably one of the ones um, that I admire the most. All right. What is your ideal place to retire? Look, I do like um, Southern California. I'm now in a position that I could live in many places. So I, um, I probably stick around here in Southern California. If you could teleport yourself right now, where would you go and why? 
I think maybe um, I would go to Hawaii. I use I really like Maui, but um, there are a lot of issues in Maui. But um, if I could, I would go to Hawaii. All right. I guess the year end is coming around the corner, so you deserve a vacation. Number one item on your bucket list right now is that Hawaii or something else? Number one on my bucket list. I think um, I would like to go to Japan, by to Tokyo and check out. I've been traveling a little bit in Asia. But um, I'd like to go to a mega city and see how that is. If you could uninvent something, what would that be? I think I would uninvent something that creates wars and um, that promotes more peace in the world. All right, cool. Who is your role model, personally or professionally? I, I think um, I'm sort of following uh, Tesla and Elon Musk. And there's a lot of controversy around him most recently, but um, I really do admire how he changed the whole industry. It is just um, amazing what he has done. Um, and um, so I think um, I'm always thinking, you know, how is he doing? What he is he? What he is able to do? Right? It's just um, from from the companies that he has created, um, and um, I, I sort of. Um, that, that's sort of a mystery how he has done this. Um, and um, so I'm following what he's doing on an economic basis, right? And um, I think um, that's probably one of the role models, um, you know, that I admire. The penultimate question, uh, one thing that can make you 10 times more productive? I think um, I would be, I would like to be more strategic in, in my role. If I think about um, how I spent my days, I probably spent um, 80, 85% on tactical things. And um, it is um, the urgent is always trumping the important. So that is so if I could reallocate my time, um, I think I could be way more productive. All right. The last one. Describe yourself in three words. Look, I'm just a normal guy who tries um, hard. Um, I have a lot of curiosity, and um, I'm not afraid to ask questions and dig in, and that's it. All right. Very cool. This has been an awesome show, Alex. Thank you so much for taking the time and being with us. All right. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.